Chapter One of From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket and How I Did It. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket and How I Did It by John Peel. Chapter One. The details of my former life will not be given here, but as I stood waiting on the depot platform at Tarboro, North Carolina, with my brother Joe, who had come to bid me good-bye one fine day in early May in the year 1906, I could, at least, say that no other chap of my acquaintance could name any more varied occupations in which he had been engaged than I could. I had been grocery clerk for my people at Tarboro, water-boy at the age of fourteen at the Buffalo Lithia Springs in Virginia, where I made scores of friends from all parts of the country, dry-goods salesman for Charles Broadway Rouse, New York City waiter in a Coney Island restaurant, bellboy in the Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York City, waiter in Buffalo, New York, where I had gone to be treated by the famous Dr. R. V. Pierce for asthma, traveling agent through the South, for James M. Davis, New York, with stereoscopic views at which I cleared over four hundred dollars in one summer's canvas, nearly ruining my vocal organs, Bible agent through the country for J. S. Peel and Company, stenographer, bookkeeper, and scores of other things I engaged in, too numerous to mention. The train, which was to mark the beginning of more adventures, hardships, and trials than I at that time could possibly imagine, pulled into the station at Tarboro, North Carolina, and bidding my brother good-bye, I got aboard. I had four dollars in money, several letters of recommendation, and a ticket. Among the letters was a note of commendation, kindly given me by Mr. John F. Shackelford of the Bank of Tarboro, and another one, equally as highly appreciated, from Mr. Frank Powell, the editor of the Tarboro Southerner. The ticket was labelled Wilmington, North Carolina, and had been purchased merely as a blind to my parents, who were unaware of the fact that I had come home from school flat broke, and as a consequence, of course, unable to purchase my fare to the West. Parting with my mother affected me no little, for it was my intention not to return home for several years. Tarboro was soon left behind, however, and now other and graver thoughts began to take possession of me. What was I to do in Wilmington with only four dollars? And how was I to get out of the town anyway, unless I purchased another ticket? During all of my travels I had never yet beaten the railroad company out of a penny, and just how I was going to board a train without being caught and locked up was the question. Little did I think at that time how expert and bold I was to become at this kind of thing before reaching far off Tucson, Arizona. The train pulled under the shed at Wilmington just after dark. It was with great reluctance I got out of my seat. In fact, all the other passengers had alighted when I got my bundles together. I would have sworn that there was a big blue-coated officer waiting to put handcuffs on me the moment I stepped from the car platform, but no such thing happened. Instead, the whole train was deserted and the porter informed me that I had better hurry if I wanted to get through the exit before it closed. Regaining courage, I hurried along in the direction the other passengers had taken, and a few moments later emerged on Front Street, Wilmington's busiest thoroughfare. I was by no means a stranger to Wilmington, and therefore had little trouble in finding a good place at which to put up without going to an expensive hotel. Leaving my few belongings behind, I started out afterwards to retrace my steps 
backed the depot and railroad yards for the purpose of obtaining any information I could regarding the schedule of the trains. About midway the bridge, which connects the depot with Front Street, I noticed two colored men engaged in watching the trains shift in and out of the yards. I at once decided that here was an opportunity to start the ball rolling, and accordingly approached them and told them where I wanted to go. In return they informed me that they were not trainmen, as I had supposed, but were employed on the steamboat Purdy. The name of their captain was Archie Marine, they said, and added that he was a good, free-hearted sort of a man, and might be able to help me get down the coast on a boat. One of them offered to conduct me to the Purdy's wharf, and a short time later we were on board. The engineer of the boat was the only man on board when we arrived, and he informed me that the captain hadn't shown up since late in the afternoon. A significant twinkle of the eye accompanied this remark, and not being altogether blind, I concluded that the Purdy's captain was in some respects the same as all other seafaring men. "'Do you know where he generally holds forth when on shore?' I asked. "'No, but probably some of the crew on shore can tell you if you can find them,' he replied. Disappointed, I made my way uptown again. Entering a drug store and calling for a directory, I soon found Marine's residence address, and a half hour later I had reached his home. Several children met me at the door, and in response to my query summoned their mother, a very pleasant-faced woman, as I recall her, who at once seemed to know that I was in trouble. She gave me explicit directions how to find her husband. "'Please tell him to come home at once if you find him,' she said. It was after eleven o'clock when I bade the lady good-night. After losing all this time, I was determined to find Marine now, if I had to traverse every street in Wilmington. Having canvassed views in the town, I had no trouble in finding the section the lady had directed me to. The place I entered was a kind of half-grocery store and half-saloon, the saloon, of course, being in the rear. On entering, my attention was directed to a party of four men, evidently seamen, judging from their language, who were in the front part of the store engaged in a conversation that could easily have been heard a block away. At last I felt sure I had cornered my man. It has always been my belief that I was especially blessed with the knack of making friends with a stranger, and this talent, which is the only one I think I ever possessed, had certainly had ample opportunity in my varied life to develop into an art. "'Hello, mates!' I sang out, approaching the quartet with a smile. What wonders a smile will work when used right? I'm looking for Archie Marine, fellows. Do you know where he is tonight? Immediately one of the men stepped forward. My name is Marine, he said. What's up? He had a pleasant way of speaking, and it was soon apparent that he embodied all the good qualities which the two darkies on Front Street Bridge had invested him with. It's something important, Marine. Come with me and I'll tell you. Without a word, the man turned his back upon the jolly companions with whom he had been lately carousing, and together we left the place. We went two blocks up the street, and here, under the shelter of a drug store, I told him I wanted to get as far down the coast as Jacksonville, Florida. He said he thought he could help me do so. "'The boats no longer run from here to Georgetown, South Carolina,' he said. "'But there's a boat from Wilmington to Southport, North Carolina, daily for seventy-five cents.' and you can easily walk across the sands from Southport to Georgetown in a day and a half. You'll not be lonesome, he added, 
for there are houses every few miles, and I'll write you a note to a friend of mine in Georgetown, who'll take you to Charleston, South Carolina, and another note to the engineer, who runs between Charleston and Jacksonville. This was great. I was to get nearly a thousand miles on my journey without incurring the risk of beating a train. The mere contemplation of beating a train seemed to stir up all the animosity in my nature towards all train officials. What? I, John R. Peel, the boy who had always been so careful at home about washing his face and keeping his clothes brushed, attempt to hide on a train and beat his fare? No, I was to preserve my dignity and travel like a gentleman on a large steamboat to Jacksonville, and then other means would surely present themselves, as probably another boat ran from Jacksonville to Galveston, Texas. Splendid idea! Why, the trip was going to prove easy, a regular cinch, and I could afford to laugh at the train people now, and that for a good long time, too, but alas, my joy was short-lived, for I was soon to learn the truth of the old adage, the best laid plans oft times go astray. We entered the drug store, and Marine, after much effort, composed the notes which he wrote down in my memorandum book. The following is a reproduction of one of them, verbatim, taken from the same little book which I yet own. Engineer, Mr. J. Dunn, will you be kind enough to help my young friend over to J. and let me hear from you oblige. Archie Marine. I was also given a letter of introduction to his brother, William Marine, who is a very popular Jacksonville citizen, and who is superintendent of the Clyde Line docks in that city. The author desires to publicly thank Mr. Marine through this book for that service, and feels confident, had he ever reached Georgetown, the notes would undoubtedly have been of much assistance. At 2 p.m. the following day, I boarded the boat for Southport, and knowing how I was to travel on leaving home, I had only brought along one suit of clothes which I had on. It was a nice-fitting khaki suit, with prominent brass buttons, and seemed to be the very thing for the wear and tear of a long journey. It was a home-guard suit, though I was no home-guard, and had never been one, but purchased the suit just before leaving home. Now, as the reader may not be aware, Southport is a favorite camping resort of North Carolina's home guards, and as luck would have it, there was a company encamped there at this particular time. Up to this time I had paid no heed to what I was wearing, but it was soon obvious that I was attracting unusual attention. There were three or four men in blue uniforms on the boat who seemed to give me their whole attention, for everywhere I went on the boat they would follow me and begin their whisperings, and it was fast becoming a nuisance, when finally one of them stepped up to me and asked, "'Are you a home guard?' "'I am not,' I replied civilly, realizing my clothes warranted the question. "'The reason I asked,' he said, "'there has been a desertion in one of the companies lately, and the description of the deserter fits you. If you were to land there now and suddenly make off across the sands towards Georgetown, I had informed him of my intention. You would quite likely be overtaken and held three or four days for identification,' he said. Having never been a home guard, I did not know whether the man was playing a practical joke on me or was telling the truth, but I did not want to be detained there for several days, and I was inclined to believe what he said was the truth. However, I did not betray this fact. Instead, I laughed and remarked that I was not afraid, but all three of the men stoutly maintained that they had tried to do me a favor, 
and seeing that I appeared to take it as a joke, one of the men finally got angry and wished me all sorts of bad things, and said he hoped I would be arrested as soon as the boat landed. The cabin was filled with passengers, and soon it was the topic of conversation, and some thought I would be held, while others took the opposite side. Sitting almost in front of me was a well-dressed man, whom I noticed had taken no part in the conversation, and he, catching my eye for a moment, winked at me and arose and left the cabin. Soon after I followed him to a deserted part of the boat. "'I am a Philadelphia drummer,' he said, "'and don't know which side to stand on, but if you will go to the engine-room, I will follow soon with a sample grip of cheap clothing, and you may pick out a cheap suit free of charge, if you will cut the buttons off your khaki coat and give them to me.' And I readily agreed, and the change was soon effected. Whether I was the victim of a practical joke or not, I have never learned, but, if so, I was ahead of the game in the clothing by a long sight, for I had selected a good warm suit. And now the strangest part of all, I had decided not to land in Southport. It was seventy-two miles to Georgetown, and bad walking in the sand, I was told. The more I thought of it, the sicker I became, and now what was I to do? Turn tramp? Never! Beating the trains would be infinitely preferable, and I would go back to Wilmington and do so. The boat landed and discharged the passengers, when, to everyone's surprise, I remained on board, and just what they thought I am unable to say. Quite likely the Philadelphia drummer thought the joke was on him, for I had told him I was eager to get to Georgetown. Passengers returning to the city now filed on, and in a short time the boat cast off and headed for Wilmington. On the return trip I noticed I was charged twenty-five cents more than when coming down, and I supposed the home guards were allowed this discount. We landed in Wilmington just after dark. My lodging, breakfast, and dinner had deprived me of seventy-five cents, and the trip to Southport had cost a dollar twenty-five, which left me the sum of two dollars, but I had no occasion to regret my trip down the river, for as a result I was now wearing an early spring suit. All of my fond hopes for reaching Jacksonville easily were now cast to the ground. Gathering up my bundles and the khaki suit, I made my way on shore. End of chapter 1